Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. The characters of Catherine Heine's short story collection, Games and Rituals, are profoundly disappointed. Their wives, husbands, lovers, parents, children, jobs, and possessions are not at all what they had anticipated or hoped for, and thus they are stuck in lives they barely recognize. A driving instructor longs for the easy-seeming optimism and care that her new colleague shows for even the most unpleasant test-takers. A woman worries over her father's declining hearing and health as they shout at each other over the Fox News that is blaring over their conversation. The new wife is roped into moving the ex-wife out of the family home. And so it is with each of these stories, the life you live is never the one you planned for. But what makes games and rituals so powerful and lasting is that every turn and turnabout in these stories is unexpected and painfully, gut-achingly funny. Few writers are as masterful with intertwining grief, dismay, and disappointment with the ridiculousness, humor, and bizarre randomness of everyday experience as Catherine Heine. Her characters imagine Ted Bundy's driving exam, They consider their father's mistake in eating his hearing aid, thinking it was an illicit cashew. They play the adoption game and imagine adults they might take in as their ersatz children. And with each story, there builds a profound well of empathy for ordinary people who struggle and who do so mightily and beautifully in the face of a world that rarely loves them back. It is rare to laugh so hard at a collection that is so serious about the human condition. And that is a wonderful thing. Catherine Heine is the author of Early Morning Riser, Standard Deviation, and Single Carefree Mellow. Her fiction has been published in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Plowshares, Glimmer Train, and many other places. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband and children. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you for having me. That was a really generous introduction. Well, I'm thrilled you're here. This is such an amazing collection of stories. I have been reading parts of them aloud to my wife and son as I've been making my way through. And I want to start with the wonderful epigraph from Edna St. Millay that starts the St. Vincent Millay that starts the collection off. Love has gone and left me and the days are all alike. There's a lot of lost love or waned or disillusioned love in the collection, bad loves, old loves, new, disappointing loves. But how do you find that you make the most enduring theme in all literature new again? How do you strive to make love come alive as a meaningful plot point and emotionally resonant core in your stories? Well, I don't like to write about the start of relationships. Um, Not because I'm not interested. I just 
struggle with it, I tend to write about the middle of relationships or the end. And I think there are a lot of st- collection of stories in the collection about what's left after the relationship is over. Even if it's a friendship, sometimes it's a marriage. There's there's something left over. There's a connection. And that is always, I would say, maybe a little more interesting to me than the beginning of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I love the, the ways in which you kind of sidewind us to endings. There's the, the, the story, the turn back, turn back, in which she slowly discovers that her actor husband has been um, having an affair. And the way we come to that ending, which you depict as a precipice in which she's sort of standing at the edge of, I think is, is remarkable and felt very new to me. And I wonder with that story in particular, how did you decide that you were going to have that particular kind of unfurling the, to the revelation? Well, I thought of this story when I was living in New York and I just I had a very strong image of a couple would be meeting in the kitchen late at night and talking about infidelity, but through the lens of the story, The Robber Bridegroom. And I just thought of that story for a long time, like 30 years. And then I wrote it a couple of years ago, finally. Oh, my gosh. There's, you know, where you say it ends on a precipice. My younger son went to the playground. He got this girl to push him on the tire swing and went around and around and around. And then he got dizzy and threw up. And he was really mad at the girl. But (laughs) I told her, just take me to the edge. And um, so, so I knew I wanted that to be in the story. And I guess... Because I wanted, I knew that the, this couple would have small children. I thought it would be neat if the reveal came from there. Um, so it really reads more than anything else I've written. It reads like a detective story a little mm, bit. Yeah, very much. And I, I love that aspect of it. Um, your opening story, which uh, is maybe my favorite. I like a lot of them, but I think this one has stuck with me the most. Chicken-flavored and lemon-scented, which is such a fantastic title. It concerns a driving exam instructor, Colette, whose everyday existence is structured by the strange rituals of her fellow examiners. They act in ways that are highly predictable and maddeningly consistent. But her drudgery is lightened by the joyfulness of a new examiner, Alejandro. What made you decide on a driving testing center as your story's location? And why did that seem like a place of rich possibilities for you? Um, Well, I took my older son to get to take his road test and he was very nervous. So I was very nervous. And I think that when I'm sort of jacked up, I make connections quicker and I get better ideas. And so I went off to sit where all the parents sit and he went to go wait for the test, the driving examiner. And one of the driving examiners was a woman, not the one that he wound up with. And then I guess some portion of my mind is given over to thinking about true crime all the time because I did think of Ted Bundy and I was like, so so he had a driver's license. That means somebody gave him a road test. And and what if that was a woman? And 
that seemed so, you know, exciting to me that I got out a piece of paper and began writing. And then I really liked the idea that when you're alone in the car with someone, people would be having these like wildly inappropriate conversations. <laughs> and, you know, the story ends up being about driving out of state for an abortion. And I wrote it way before Roe v. Wade was overturned because I could only ever write a politically relevant story by accident. <laughs> but so it came together very quickly in my mind. And then when I was writing it, I kept wanting to to write about each each driving examiner's specialty and how that would work and how you would interact. And it just seemed like a really an interesting possibility to me. It seemed like it had a lot of possibility. Well, so much happens and so much is produced in that story. As you say, it ends up a very affecting story about uh, the driving examiner and the role that she will be asked to play in this um, uh, in this potential abortion. And it starts with Ted Bundy and the imagining of him having a driving instructor who might be a woman. Uh, and there's so much in between. And and that's I, I find that about a lot of your stories. They are they exist in many places all at once. And I, I really like the fullness of them. And I wondered, is that something that has come to you as a as a kind of form of your own thinking about the story? Has have you always written stories that way or is that something that has developed over the years? I think that it's something that has developed over the years. I think I started my writing life as a poet. And I think that was because poems are short and I could control them. And then I moved to short stories. And, you know, when I look back at some of my earlier short stories, I'm like, wow, they didn't have a lot of plot. They were more just like a little character development. But after I had written a novel plot seemed a lot easier for me. It seemed like something I could do, whereas it had always seemed like something I couldn't do. So I think these stories benefit hugely from having plots, even if the plot is sometimes a little secondary to what the characters are going through. They do have plots, and I would say that you're one of my favorite things about them is that you're not afraid of a tangential plot to sort of come out of nowhere and then take us somewhere completely new. I tend to think that people who love the short story form are particularly fond of great first lines. I think you're a master of the first line. Yours are funny, quirky, paradoxical, unexpected. Here's just three. Quote, just as Jane Austen believed that four people cannot comfortably walk abreast, Charlene believes that three people cannot amicably move one person's belongings, not when two of the people used to be married to each other. Your elderly father has mistaken his $4,000 hearing aid for a cashew and eaten it. And finally, Colette has been a, a driving examiner for 12 years. She's 36, and yet it only occurs to her today that Ted Bundy had a driver's license. What are the ingredients to a great first line? Is it something you're conscious of crafting differently from the rest of the story? Yes, usually. It's, I mean, my father did mistake his hearing aid for cashew and eat it. <laughs> Uh, oh no. Yeah, but it was destroyed. And I had gotten him the first one and I flew back to help him get the second one. 
so I remember when my dad did that, I was like, I need to write a story about it. So the the first line of that was very, very easy for me. And the same with the DMV story. Um, yeah, it is something that I put a lot of thought into. It's not always the first thing that I write. Sometimes I have to circle back. But yeah, I think maybe it's like the poetry thing of like the first line is very important. It's mm-hmm. kind of Often the title of a poem is the first line. Yeah, and I feel like much more than a, than a novel, although obviously Jane Austen proves me wrong, but um, much more than an, in a novel, the short story demands a, a first line that is going to do a lot of work. It, it can't just sort of sit there. I don't know. Do you agree? Oh, I agree 100%. Yeah. Um, so the cashew line, the cashew incident, which we now know is a true, true to life story from the story Twist and Shout, is about a woman's relationship with her elderly father, who she cares deeply about while finding him entirely alien to her political and cultural sensibilities. It's a riotously funny story about very unfunny things, aging, the failed U.S. healthcare system, poisonous conservative politics, etc. Um, and a lot of what's funny about it are these unadulterated uh, groupings of dialogue back and forth between the, the daughter and, the, and her father. And the daughter's lines are almost always in all caps to designate that she's having to shout because of her father's, you know, near deafness. And I and I wonder what it's like to try and craft dialogue with, I mean, to try and craft humor with dialogue and dialogue that you're not really couching in any way. You're just letting it sit and be. And whether this story was a particular revelation for you about how to use dialogue in that way. Well, my dad was very conservative, although not as conservative as the dad in the story. And um, one of the things that gave me an idea for for his conservatism being like the thing that they argue about is when my brothers would visit my dad, they would send me these texts you know, very upset. And I would text back and say, like, just try not to discuss politics. You're not going to change his mind. You know, simply redirect the conversation to a less controversial topic. And then I would go visit my dad and and send my brothers these texts that were like, oh, my God, I want to fucking kill dad. You just try. So, so. The, the way I wrote the dialogue to be funny was I was writing it um, for other people to hear. Because also, when you're accompanying somebody with severe hearing loss, then you have to shout and everybody can hear everything that you say. <laughs> so, yeah, I think maybe the humor, the humor comes from from the fact that she like totally loses it so often with him, despite her her resolve to be, you know, to rise above it. And after I wrote the story, somebody told me that when you shout, it makes you physically angry. And I was very, very interested in that. I was like, oh, that sort of explains a lot. Boy, yeah, that I I mean, everyone should have to have a poster somewhere in their like dwelling that says shouting makes you angrier. Because I think that we could all do with some some learning of that. Uh, I I think 
funny is really hard and it's and it's something that just doesn't work in a lot of uh, a lot of fiction and in games and rituals uh, what often occurs is that there's this mixture equally with pretty pretty difficult emotional pain and humor for example one of my favorite lines comes from pandemic behavior a story that is essentially about the closing off of our worlds during covid the protagonist is zooming with her neurologist about increased migraines and he asks if anything has changed recently her response is perfect well yes there's a pandemic and civil unrest and murder hornets um first of all thank you for the call back to that period of time in which murder hornets had to join the height of the the <laughs> pandemic and we were all googling how soon they would arrive from mexico uh so thanks for that um but also what's the relationship between humor and emotional pain for you in these stories i don't think that i could do one without the other um the Funny parts are usually the parts of the story that come to me the soonest and are the most fun to write. And um, when when something funny happens to me, it's it's like a gift. Hmm. Like my sons and I were walking through the woods with our dogs, and we kept seeing members of this running team, and they were wearing the same shorts and shirt and so when each one came by I was like hello because we had just moved here and I was being really friendly and finally my sons pointed out that it was the same guy running <laughs> on a really short loop <laughs> and I was just like you know what I'm not as sharp as I was pre-pandemic it's, <laughs> it's just a fact but I was really really happy when that happened and even if I don't write about something funny when something funny happens to me it makes me want to write Mm. Were you worried at all about going straight at the pandemic so close to its most traumatic years? I remember being at a um, Jonathan Safran Four reading very soon after 9-11 when he had just published his novel that, that took up 9-11 directly and him being asked that and, um, and saying that, no, in fact, it wasn't. It wasn't too soon. And and I wonder if you thought a little bit about that and, and whether you think that literature's relationship to global trauma is one of urgency. I would say yes. I know a lot of people are saying that we haven't processed the pandemic enough to write about it. And I don't know that that's if we haven't processed it enough. I think probably better work about the pandemic will come the farther we are away from it and the more time we have to process it. But um, I started writing that story because I get migraines and they got worse during the pandemic. And my doctor um, started me on this injection that I had to give myself once a month. And it's very hard to inject yourself. And I had my husband do it. But I thought, what if, what if you lived by yourself or you lived with a roommate? And then I wanted to write it. The idea of I like to write about roommates. Um, that idea that they would be these two girls would be in lockdown and not know each other terribly well and then have to be bonded by one of them giving the other one a shot it seemed it seemed like a really rich idea although i wrote the first half of it during lockdown 
And then I was just like, this isn't going to work. And I put it aside. And then I re I wrote the other half of it like a year later. And I hardly ever do that. So I guess I did mm. need a little space from it. That's really interesting. I, um, in thinking about the way in which, you know, roommates are important to you, but also exes are important to you. And in the story 561, you probe the relationship between a woman and her ex-husband's new spouse, who he had an affair with when they were married. The story starts with an uncomfortable moving scene in which the husband and his new wife, Charlie, are moving the ex-wife, Barbara, out of the family home. But the story flashes back to when Charlie and Barbara worked together at a suicide crisis hotline, sharing a particularly difficult evening. This seems a relationship ripe for fiction, but it is very often secondary to the conflicts of the husband and the ex-wife. What drew you to the connective tissues that joined the once and former wives in this and other stories? Well, when I was in my 20s, I worked as a volunteer at a suicide hotline. And um, the part of it that surprised me most were the regulars, that there were regular people who called, um, you know, some called once per day, once per shift, some called once per month, some would go like through a little spate of calling us and then um, disappear for a while. And there were these books called the regular books. And the volunteers were supposed to look through them and familiarize themselves with the regulars so that, you know, we would sort of have, like, we wouldn't overthink the call, I guess. Maybe it would be a way to put that. And I remember wanting to write about the regular books. Um, when I worked there, but I wasn't a very strong writer then. So I just sort of put it aside. And then um, we moved, gosh, two years ago. And I still don't even understand what is so hellish about moving your possessions from one place to another, but it is just the worst experience. It's so awful. And yeah, it's the, it is. It's one of, it's like top five worst things. And so, well, everybody says that the three most stressful things are death, divorce, and relocation. And then I was planning this story and I was like, well, we could have the death from the suicide hotline and the relocation, but there needs to be a divorce in there. And and the idea occurred to me of like, it's hellish enough to move yourself, but imagine moving somebody you don't even like, who's not mm. very nice to you. Um. So that's how that story came into being. And do you, did you find in particular that you say someone who doesn't like you, but that the, the story has an even more toned up version of that, having to move the woman you, in a sense, have replaced and <laughs> then are replacing her stuff. I think that's an, an extraordinary relationship. And I wonder if that in particular sparked something for you. Yeah, I definitely... Um, I don't know the, the, the first idea I had for it was, um, moving in the extreme cold and, um, I don't know the rest of it. It just sort of occurred to me. It sounds like I should have a, a better understanding of my own work, but sometimes 
ideas just sort of arrive and if they work, you put them in. No, I think that's, well, that's a, a magical thing about literature, I think. Um, the story Cobra uh, is refers to a man, William, who calls his wife Cobra in a condensing of her first and last name and switching their order, but also to a reckoning with her continued disappointment with him. Cobra, the woman, is seeking her click point a term borrowed from the house-decluttering goddess Marie Kondo, for when she will have given away enough material objects to know that she is finally happy. I realized as I was finishing the collection that so many of your characters are looking to strip away things from their lives. Marriages, affairs, obsessions, depressions, material objects, headaches, in the hopes of locating their click point but it rarely ever occurs. Is the click point a useful term for you to think about how disappointment works in these stories? Yeah, I guess so. Now I'm thinking about that in terms of my own life. I wrote that story because I have a friend who's not a hoarder, but her house is very cluttered. And she ordered the Marie Kondo book and then she lost it in the <laughs> her house. <laughs> And um, I was like, oh, this is perfect. That The irony of that is so great. So I ordered the book and when I was reading it and I was getting inspired to declutter and my husband said, like, do I still spark joy? Or are you going to put me out with all this other stuff? And I was like, I'll never put you out because you spark joy by giving me these great first lines all the time. <laughs> um, and so... That was the start of that story. And um, I liked the idea of this couple who's very far along in their marriage. Their children have left home or about to leave home. And they're sort of figuring each other out again. Yeah, that's well. And, and you reference the first line and it is it is so very good about her putting him out with the, you know, for the goodwill uh, and decluttering him. But I'm glad you're not going to declutter your husband. No, he can stay. I, I before I let you go, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're reading and loving right now and any recommendations that you might have for our listeners. Well. I have to tell a story about this because I did a podcast a few weeks ago. And at the end of every podcast or interview that I've given, they ask, you know, what are you reading? What are you listening to? So I'm all ready for this question. And the guy says, if you could say anything, you know, for future generations, for all eternity, what would it be? And I said, Celebrity Memoir Book Club is a really funny podcast because that's Man. what was on my mind. So that's what I said for all eternity. And I, <laughs> for future generations. That's, a, that's amazing. Um, as far as what I'm reading, uh, there was a book, We All Want Impossible Things by Catherine Newman, which is actually about a woman whose best friend is in hospice. And yet it manages to be a really funny book. And it really explores friendship which is something, a relationship that I think is sort of underrepresented. People mostly talk of, write about romantic relationships. And then I read Either Or by Leif Batuman, Leif Batuman, 
And I was such a fan of The Idiot. I was just so happy to have another book from her to read. And then I recently read This Story Will Change by Elizabeth Crane, which is um, a memoir of her divorce, but it's written in the third person. And it's in these very short chapters that are like the literary equivalent of shots of vodka. It's like, I'll just do another one and another one, <laughs> another one. Um, and I stayed up reading till like two in the morning, which I hardly ever do. So oh, wow. Um, all of those were great books. I that's a heck of a recommendation. W will you tell me the name of the podcast that we're that's going to be preserved, you know, after the human species has has left the planet for other uh, extraterrestrials? It's called Celebrity Memoir Book Club. And these two girls read celebrity memoirs and make fun of them. That sounds so good. It's uh delicious. It's it it reminds me of my all-time favorite uh, humorous podcast, My Dad Wrote a Porno. Have you listened to that? Yeah, I think so, but I'm writing it down. It, has, it follows a similar, uh, a similar con conceit in three friends read one friend's father's self-published pornography, um, oh which is so terrifyingly bad that it becomes just the funniest thing. And it, and it went for many seasons because the dad just kept writing and self-publishing. Uh, and the, the, the name of the, the multi-volume book is Belinda Blinked. <laughs> and it, it's just so funny. The other, I, and I'll, and I'll just leave you with one of my, uh, the podcasts that I recommend often, and it's called Mission to Zix. And it's a uh, a group of improv actors who put on this show that's sort of a little bit like an old-timey radio program, but it's these crew members on a ship out in the galaxy who have been tasked to be ambassadors for the Galactic Alliance, uh -huh. and they are just uncommon fuck-ups, and they can't do anything right, and they like make a disaster of every new um, planet and culture that they encounter. So if you uh, if you're looking for more humorous podcasts, then than those, am. we have a road trip coming up. Have you listened to um, Cold Case Murder Mysteries? Mm -mm. No, I haven't. Well, I told my brother about it and I was like, it's called Cold Case Murder Mysteries and it's about cold case murder mysteries. And my brother was like, thanks for clearing that up. <laughs> but and but the weird thing is, like, I love it. Everybody I've made listen to it hates it. So mm. I'm looking for somebody who who likes it. So give it a listen. Maybe. Well, I will. That person. Yeah. Um, but Celebrity Memoir Book Club is very, very funny. I will listen to both of them. Uh, but I want to make sure that my listeners, the first thing they do is go out and buy Games and Rituals by Catherine Heine, which will not disappoint and is funny and profound and thoughtful and has stories that will stick with you. Uh, and it was such a pleasure to get to talk about your collection, Catherine. Thank you. It was really, really fun. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Catherine Heine for coming on to talk about her latest collection of short stories, Games and Rituals. 
You can find links to purchase Catherine's book and all her recommended books and podcasts at the website burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.